Father, you have been and are such a gracious and giving God. There is not a need in our lives that you're not fully, completely aware of. And that you and your grace and your love for us have made provision in abundance. Lord, I pray today as we open your word, we open our hearts. Each one of us come here with needs. Each one of us come here hungry for you. I pray, Father, that you'd feed our hearts, satisfy our souls, recognizing that only you can do that. We are indeed hungry for you and desperate. We pray these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue on in our series that we've been walking through for the last number of weeks, Building on the Ten Commandments. A series I've entitled, Ten Healthy Habits for Building Strong Families. I don't think it can be said in such a way that there is no other piece of literature, no other document in the entirety of the world's history that has so impacted the world, the nation's humanity, is God's Word and God's Ten Commandments have. In fact, God's Ten Commandments have so served as the moral architect and the foundation of what has made America great and exceptional in her moral laws. Old Testament scholar Dennis Prager says, referring to the Ten Commandments, they are the foundation stones of Western civilization. He goes on to say Western civilization the civilizations that developed universal human rights, created women's equality, ended slavery, created parliamentary doc, uh, democracy, among other unique achievements, would not, have, would not have developed without them. Each commandment is a moral tour de force. Together they present the most compelling plan ever devised for a better life and a good world. As right as he is, we would be remiss if that's all we thought God gave his word for, simply to make a better life and a good world. God gave us the Ten Commandments. He gave us his word to help us recognize our inseparable and desperate need for him in our lives. You see, without God, life does not make sense. It is our relationship with God that brings sense, that brings meaning, brings fulfillment to our lives unlike any other. So many people throughout the history of mankind can attest to and have attested to how trying to live their lives without God has brought meaninglessness and emptiness to them. I think of H.G. Wells, the famous philosopher and historian, who at the age of 61 said, I have no peace. All life it's at the end of the tether. He'd come to the end of his rope, and there was no peace. The famous 18th century George Byron poet said, My days are in yellow leaf, and the flowers and the fruits of life are gone. The worm and the canker and the grief are mine alone. 
dreary words of a man without God. The great literary genius Henry David Thoreau said, Most men live their lives in quiet desperation. Ralph Barton, who was a famous cartoonist during the 1900s, left this note pinned to his pillow shortly before he took his own life. He said, I've had few difficulties, many friends, great successes. I've gone from wife to wife, from house to house, visited great countries of the world, but I am fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours of the day. He had everything, and yet he realized he had nothing in life. Why? Because we were created to have a relationship with the living and true God. Well, this morning, I want us to look at trusting God to meet your needs. I think one of the greatest truths that we can pass on to our children, model for our children, is for them to see a relationship that we have with God and that He satisfies our greatest needs in our lives. Mom and dads, grandma and grandpas, aunts and uncles, you're praying for family members that don't know Christ. And you're wondering, how am I going to be able to share the gospel with them? How am I going to be able to share Christ with them? One of the most powerful ways you can do that is how you live your life, showing that God is the relationship that you have that satisfies the greatest need of all your needs in your life. When they see that, they cannot help but recognize that. I want us to look this morning at the Eighth Commandment and the Ten Commandments. It's going to address how God meets our needs. It may not sound like it when you first hear it, but the Eighth Commandment says this, You shall not steal. You shall not steal. What God is saying in this one commandment is that I will meet all your needs. You do not need to resort to thievery or trying to take matters into your own hands. I will care for you in your life in every respect. In fact, someone has said that you could take all the Ten Commandments and put them in these, one, these four words. For instance, the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's called idolatry. When we worship another god, we're stealing from God the glory he deserves. We're also robbing from ourselves because we're made in the very image of God, and we rob ourselves of the dignity and value that God created us to be. So idolatry is found in this commandment that robs us from our dignity and value that God has given us. Murder is wrongly stealing the life of another. Adultery is stealing another person's spouse. Bearing false witness is stealing somebody's good name. So you can see all the Ten Commandments are wrapped up in these four words alone, this one commandment. Well, this morning I want to try to answer some questions, basic questions, from this commandment. Why is it that we steal? Now I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you have never stolen anything in your life? Not one single hand came up. So I'm speaking to a room full of thieves. Okay. <laughs> By the way, I've done my fair share as well. I could tell you stories, but I'm not going there. So why is it that we steal, and what are some of the ways that we steal that we don't even realize that are off our radar, so to speak, and what, are, what is God's answer to stealing? So the first question is, why is it that we steal? The basic answer, the very simple answer to this, we steal because we ultimately don't trust God to provide for our needs. So we believe that we must somehow take matters in our own hands. 
And yet what is amazing about this, the Bible tells us, God has shown us time and time again, he is our provider. He is our sustainer. He is our protector. He is our creator. Do you know that God has created a world that is so unique, unparalleled to any other planet in the whole solar system, to be able to take care of your needs? I want you to do this when they go, take a deep breath. If you were on Mars, you couldn't do that. If you were in Pluto, you couldn't do that. If you were on any other planet, you couldn't do that. But God has so uniquely created this planet so that we can live and exist and have our needs met. God has provided for us. We forget that. And the problem that we have is not with God. The problem is with us. We fail to recognize who God is and that he, as our God, has promised, has guaranteed, has proven time and time again that he is the God who will take care of all of our needs. Some of you came here this morning with needs in your life. They are pressing needs. They may be needs of relationships, financial needs. Needs that you have opportunities perhaps in, your, in front of you that if you take matters in your own hands, you can somehow satisfy those needs or believe that you can. There are temptations in your life to usurp trusting in God to provide those needs. I want to challenge you this morning that the reason that we still is because ultimately we're saying, I cannot trust God to take care of my needs. Probably one of the most poignant and powerful stories of this is found in Joshua chapters 6 and 7. paints an amazing picture of this. It's a story that all of us are familiar with. Remember when Joshua fit the battle of Jericho? Well, Joshua didn't fight the battle. God fought the battle. But this story is an amazing story. The nation of Israel has just entered the promised land. God has miraculously dried up the Jordan River so they could cross over. And all the nation of Israel cross over into now enemy territory. And then God brings the river back into its springtime flow. There is no escape. And Israel now must obey God. The only way they can go is go forward. They cannot go back. And the very first city they come to is the city called Jericho. This is probably the strongest, most formidable foe that they would face in their entire campaign in taking the land. It was a well-fortified city, impressive. And God tells Joshua in Joshua chapter 6, verse 2, he says, Joshua, he says, this city is already in your hands. The victory is already yours. I will fight for you. And then God tells him a plan. Now, as military strategy goes, it is totally off the rocker. God says, here's what I want you to do. Joshua, I want you to take your men of war. And then I want you to take seven priests with seven trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant. And I want you to march around the city of Jericho, which is roughly eight to nine acres. I want you to march around the city of Jericho one time for six days. On the seventh day... I want you to take the same men of war, the same seven priests, the same uh, trumpets, the Ark of the Covenant, and I want you to march around seven times, not just once, but seven times. At the end of that seventh time, I want the priests to blow their trumpets and the people at my command to give a great shout, and I will follow the walls on the, nation, on the people of Jericho. Now, I don't know about you, but that is the zaniest military strategy I've ever heard. 
Could you imagine what the people of Jericho were thinking as they watched these people circle around in total silence for six days? They don't say a word. They just march around the soldiers. And by the way, I'm sure they stayed far enough away from arrows and spears and things like that. But they don't say a word. They just march around. But just think what the Israelites are thinking as they walk around these walls. They see these huge, well-fortified walls. And they're going, God, how are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? And yet God did on the seventh day. On the seventh day, the morning of, God tells, or pardon me, Joshua tells the nation of Israel, he says, listen, as you go in and take this city, and God flattens the walls. I want you to know this city is the first fruits of all that God is going to give you, and therefore it belongs to God. Everything in it. I want you to destroy every life that's in it, but all the values are to go into the treasury of God. You are not to take even one. Now, the spoils of war were the payment for a soldier when they went to war. And God is saying, you shall have none of that. All of it is to be dedicated to the Lord. Well, Joshua chapter 7 happens. They take the city, and we soon find out that something went disastrously wrong. We discover that a character by the name of Achan, whose name, by the way, means trouble. How would you like to have that name? Some of you were named that when you were growing up, right? He's trouble. She's trouble. But that was his name, Achan. And Achan decided as he stormed the walls of Jericho, he began to see this immense wealth, the gold, the silver, all the designer label, label clothes, all these different things. And the first thing that began to happen is he began to rationalize in his mind. I could take some of this, just a little bit. So he takes about 200 shekels of silver, which is roughly about five pounds, and about 50 shekels of gold, which is a little over a pound, and he finds this, it says, a garment of Shinar, that is from Babylon. Some people believe this is threaded with actual gold. He takes these three items, and somehow he smuggles them back to his tent, and he buries them in the bottom of the tent. And everything is great. It seems as though he has gotten away with it. Nobody seems to notice. Everything is great. As they're celebrating their victory over Jericho, Joshua turns his eyes to Ai, their next conquest. He sends some scouts out to Ai, just a little kind of rumble-tumble little place. And the scouts come back and say, you know what, this is no problem. Don't send the whole army, just send maybe two or 3,000 men. That's all you need. Joshua says, okay, I'll send 3,000 of you out. They go out to take Ai, and no sooner they start trying to take the city when everything begins to fall apart. And they find themselves soon in full retreat with 36 dead soldiers, Israeli soldiers, in the wake of this war. Disaster strikes the nation of Israel. When Joshua hears about this, he is torn with despair. Him and the elders begin to tear their robes, sign of great despair. Why? Because they realize they're trapped. They're trapped in enemy territory. And if the rest of the nations hear now of this defeat, they're going to come in and destroy the nation of Israel. They believe they're finished. They're done. And so Joshua and the elders fall before the ark, and they cry out to God. The funny thing that I think that is interesting here is that Joshua doesn't realize what went wrong? 
He should have. He told him in advance, if you take these things, disaster is going to happen. But he must have thought that didn't happen. He couldn't figure out what was going on. You ever been in a situation where you planned everything out, everything was going perfect, and then everything began to fall apart, and you have no idea why and no control over it? Never been there, right? That's what was happening to Joshua. And then God says to him, he says, Joshua, rise up. Why are you laying down? And he explains to him that somebody has taken possessions from the city of Jericho. Now, I want you to notice in this that there were thousands and thousands of Israeli soldiers. And Achan must have thought, surely no one will see just this one soldier take a little bit. But God sees it all. Nothing escaped the notice of God. Well, then God devises this elaborate plan to find the guilty person. As I read through this passage, I thought, why didn't God just say, you know, hey, Aiken's your guy. He's the one. But instead, God goes through this elaborate plan. He says, I want you to bring all the 12 tribes together and then from the 12 tribes, I'm going to pick one tribe. And from that one tribe, I'm going to pick one family. And from that one family or clan, I'm going to pick one family. And from that one family, I'm going to find the person. Why does God go through all that? I believe that God's plan was an act of grace. He gave Achan the opportunity, full opportunity through the entire process to step forward and say, hey, you don't need to do this. I'm the one who took it. I took it. I confess. The irony is that Achan never does that. He somehow believes out of all these thousands and thousands of soldiers that surely he will not be found out. Well, he is. And when he's found out, Joshua says to him, he says, why in the world did you do this? Why did you bring trouble on us as you have? Not only have you cost us disaster of 36 people, but you put us in danger of now being destroyed by all the nations around us. Then Achan confesses, and he tells Joshua what he did. Chapter 7, verses 20 and 21, So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Now listen carefully what he did, because we see the same pattern tragically repeated throughout Scripture and our lives. When I saw the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and took them, and then he hid them. But I want you to notice the pattern. I saw, I coveted, and I took. I saw, I coveted, and I took. That same tragic pattern is seen throughout Scripture time and time again. What happened to Adam and Eve? Well, Eve saw, she coveted, she took, and she ate. What happened to David and Bathsheba? David saw, he coveted, he took. The same tragic pattern seen throughout Scripture time and time again. The same thing happens to us. When temptation enters your life, when sin enters your life to not trust God to provide for your needs, the same pattern happens. You see it, and you go, wow. You covet it. You think, i got to have this. And then you take it. And then inevitably, just like Achan, we hide it. We try to hide it from God. We try to hide it from others. 
And we're going to see the disaster that brings into our lives. But I was thinking about this this week, and I thought, what was going on in Achan's heart that caused him to rationalize taking these goods and not trusting God? I came up with four reasons, four things that were going through his mind. The first one was skepticism. That is, he simply doubted God's word. He rationalized that God was not truly the God of his word. He had a love more for money than he had a love for God. He had a love for wealth more than he did for God. Paul says this, People who long to be rich fall into temptation are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many a sorrows. I wonder if Paul was thinking of Achan when he penned these words. It's not money that is a problem. Wealth is not the issue. It's the love of money that is the roots of all kinds of evil. Skepticism. He doubted God. Second was satisfaction. You see, Achan believed when he saw those goods that he would never find satisfaction in his life unless he had them. Now, I want you to listen to very, something very carefully. There are many things that are going to allure you and tempt you that you think you must have in life or you will not find satisfaction. But can I tell you, you can have all the wealth in the world, all the things in the world, you'll still not be satisfied. Do you know why? Because you were made for more than just this world. You were made for more than just this world. You were made to have a relationship with the living, true God. And he alone, the creator, who lives outside of time, who lives outside of creation, he alone in whose image you're made in, he alone is the one who can bring satisfaction to your heart that you long for. Some of you think, you know, if I could just have that new car, if I could just have that new home, if I just had a bigger bank account, if I just had, if I just had, and you can have all you want, but you'll still never be satisfied. Why? Because you were made for more than just this world. You were made for a relationship with the living and holy and true God. Ecclesiastes says those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. <laughs> How many of you have a lot of money? I, I don't want to know. Just curious. But you know what I've discovered? The more money people have, the less content they are. And the more money they think they want to be content the way they think they should be. And then when they get that more money, guess what happens? They're still discontent. You see, God is not concerned about how much you have or don't have because true contentment doesn't lie in how much or how little. True contentment lies in knowing the one true God who provides for your needs. He alone is the one who owns the cattle in a thousand years. Or a thousand, <laughs> a thousand, what is that? A thousand acres, a thousand hills. Thank you. God is the one who provide, will provide for your needs. And time and time again, I've seen him do that, not only in my life, but in many other people's lives. A third is, satis is security. Achan believed that if he had this wealth, if he had this robe, it would give him financial security that he was ultimately looking for. By the way, that was the whole purpose when they raided these cities, that the loot from these cities would be the payment to the soldiers. 
And so he believed that somehow this would bring great security to him in his life. When in fact, what it really did was it brought great insecurity. Jesus said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Achan gave in exchange for his soul the allurement, the false promise of financial security. Some of you may be tempted to put all of your trust and your security in your finances, your retirement. God says, don't do it. You'll never find the security you're looking for in that. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 19 says, Such is the fate of all who are greedy for money. It robs them of life. You'll never find true security or life. Another reason I think that Achan was rationalized in his mind was status. He believed that this stolen property would bring a place of status. It would leverage him to a place of status that he wanted. And who knows what was going through his mind? Can you imagine? Maybe he was thinking when he saw those things, you know, I've been poor for the last 40 years, wandering around the desert. I deserve this. I deserve this. I want to have finances for my family. I want to have a future for them. I want to build a home in this new land. I don't know what he was thinking. But one thing is for sure. By taking the robe, by taking the gold, by taking the silver, he believed somehow it would bring him a status that he was looking for. The only problem with this status was that it was buried in the bottom of his tent, and he couldn't tell anybody about it. What a bummer. It reminds me of the pastor who called in sick one Sunday and went fishing instead. And then he caught the biggest fish he'd ever caught in his life, and he couldn't tell anybody about it. <laughs> That's where Achan was at. Just think what he was going through. He buried these things in his tent. He couldn't wait to use them, but he couldn't tell a soul about it. He said the very status that he was looking for, the very security, the satisfaction that he wanted, it could never, ever give him. And yet even worse, everything Achan had hoped for, everything he hoped to attain, was lost. The tragedy of this story is that God is showing us that when we put our desires, when we put our motives ahead of God, by not trusting him and trying to take matters in our own hands, it always brings disaster into our lives. For Achan, it was an incredible cost. Not only did it cost him his life, but it cost him his family's life and all of his goods. Not only did it cost him his family's life and all his goods, but it cost the lives of 36 brave soldiers as well. The Bible says your sin will find you out. And sin will always destroy, no matter how promising it seems. When you try to live without God, when you try to take matters in your own hands, it will always destroy your life. So it says, when God finally gave the okay to take Ai, something amazing happened. Joshua chapter 8, verse 27 says this, when Joshua went in and finally destroyed Ai after they took care of Achan and the sin in the camp, it says Israel took from Ai the cattle, the spoil of the city, and the plunder for themselves according to the word of the Lord which he had commanded Joshua. Had Achan only waited, had he only waited, 
He would have more than an abundance of all the gold, all the silver, all the things he wanted, and he would have been able to freely enjoy them. How many times we found ourselves being tempted to usurp God's word, to take matters in our own hands, and had we only waited, God was going to provide. This applies to so many things in our lives. It applies to relationships, doesn't it? How many young people can't wait to get married? And they long for that relationship, and they skip God in the process. They decide, we're just going to live together. We're just going to sleep together. And usurp God in the entire process. Studies have shown time and time again that couples that live together, that don't get married, that don't include God in their relationship, always, pretty much always, end in disaster. They never find contentment. And then those couples that finally do get married because they say, you know what, we need to get married. The odds are against that marriage from succeeding because they never factored God into it in the first place. When we try to go it alone without God and we usurp God's plans in our lives, it always brings trouble. You see, the lesson of the Eighth Commandment is that God is not so much concerned about how much property you have or don't have. He's more concerned about our view of the property that we have, of the wealth that God has given us. And had Achan only stopped to remember when that temptation came, had he only stopped to remember, hasn't God provided for all of our needs? Hasn't he taken care of us time and time again? Didn't he dry up the Jordan River? Didn't he provide manna for 40 years for us? Didn't he make it so that our clothing never wore out? Didn't God provide for us? What was going through his mind? Unbelief. He doubted that God would come through for him. He believed that the satisfaction would come through the stolen items. It never did. He believed security would come through those things. It never did. He believed status would come through those things. It never did. You see, God knows your needs. Can you just say that with me? Say, God knows my needs. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, God knows your needs. God knows your needs before you even know them themselves. Jesus said it this way. He said, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you put God first and say, God, I'm going to trust you for my relationships. I'm going to trust you for my finances. I'm going to trust you for my health. I'm going to trust you for my future. I'm going to trust you for my plans. Do you really think you can trust him? He says, you can trust me. And that's what he wants you to do. There are a number of ways that we steal today that uh, maybe are not on our radar. Um, it was interesting when I asked you, I thought at least it'd be one or two people who would raise their hands and say, I've never stolen anything in my life. <laughs> but there wasn't a single one. So since, uh, since I'm talking to a group of thieves, let me just kind of share with you. What are some ways that we steal? Well, one is theft. 
simply taking what is not ours. You say, well, that's an obvious one, but let me just get a little more into your life if I could. How many of you have things at home from the workplace that you temporarily and definitely borrowed from your employer that are in your home? I mean, it's something as small as maybe a paperclip or a ruler or whatever it may be. Now, we may call that long-term borrowing. And my intent is, of course, to bring it back. Or you may think like Aiken, this is such a small, tiddly thing that is no big deal. But the Bible calls this theft. Theft. Jesus said, from out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. And sometimes those things aren't even on our radar, are they? The small things we take. How about when you go into the grocery store and you see the produce aisle and you say, I wonder if these grapes are any good. <laughs> Forget the grapes. Let's just go check out an apple or maybe a cantaloupe. The point is simply this, is that there are things that we take that are socially acceptable that are not on our radar that God says, listen, that's still considered stealing. It's not yours. Another way I think that we steal is slander, defaming the character of another. This is stealing another person's good name. You see, the difference between this kind of stealing and other kinds of stealing is that you can replace property, you can replace money, but you cannot replace someone's character. And what I've discovered that when people slander other people, oftentimes that damage is irreparable. It cannot be restored. The Bible says a slander separates intimate friends. How many of you have ever experienced that in your life? Where someone said something about you that you knew was taking your good name and trashing it. And the next time you see that person, or you see those people they've told it to, they look at you kind of funny and go, oh yeah, I know what happened. Sure. Slander, defaming the character of another. Shakespeare said, who steals my purse steals trash, but he that filters from my good name makes me poor indeed. The Apostle Paul said this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Let all slander be put away from you, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. The temptation to slander, to steal a good name from somebody else reveals that you have a heart of unforgiveness, a heart of bitterness. And when you're tempted to thieve, to steal somebody's good name, it is telling you that I'm still wrestling with unforgiveness in my heart. But the Bible says we're to forgive each other just as God and Christ also forgave us. Another way I think that we steal is stewardship. Misusing our time, our talents, our treasures, one of the common things that we oftentimes think today is that people think, this is my life. I can do what I want with it. As long as I don't hurt somebody, I'm okay. Do you know what? Your life is not your own. The Bible says this, in fact, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, that, he says that we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. What the Bible is saying there is this, is that your life is not your own. You either belong to the kingdom of darkness or you belong to the kingdom of light, one of the two. 
The Bible goes on to say this, and we all know this from experience, that your time, your treasures, your talents are really not yours. You can't recapture time. Once it's gone, it's gone. You only have so many days. The treasures that you have, you think, these are mine. I've worked for them. I've worked hard for them. You know what? You're going to leave those to somebody else. You have them only on temporary loan. And you're merely the steward of all that you have, your time, your talents, your treasures. And the Bible says one day you'll give an account before God of what you did with what he gave you in your life. You see, the Bible says this, if you're a follower of Christ, your life doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. You were purchased with a price. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, writes Paul, who is in you, whom God, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. You were bought with a price. And so your entire life one day as a stewardship will be stand before God. And the greatest questions God's going to ask you is this. Not about your time, not about your talents, not about your treasures. The greatest questions to ask you is this. What, you do, what did you do with my son Jesus Christ? Did you accept him or reject him? Did you do God's will with your life or not? That's the greatest question that we have to answer. Solomon when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, some people believe he wrote this in his middle life, middle life crisis. And he said something at the closing of this book that I think is very fascinating. He was looking back at his life and he was reflecting on not only his life vanity, vanity upon vanity are, are his life, but he was also reflecting on the fact that the only good thing to do in life is to follow God. And he closes with this bit of wisdom. He says, young people, it is wonderful to be young. Enjoy every minute of it, of it. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. But remember that you must give an account to God for everything you do. Remember that you must give an account to God for everything you do. Young or old, we stand before God. We'll have to give an account for our lives. So what is God's answer to stealing? Let me set up in one word. It's contentment. It's learning that I can trust God and be content with him providing for all my needs. Paul said it this way, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Contentment in life is not something that is instant. It's something that you learn. It's learning to trust God to meet your needs, whatever your circumstances are. And contentment is not laziness. It's not complacency. It's not a case or raw kind of attitude. It's independent of our circumstances. It doesn't come from things or people. It comes from a choice to trust God for all of my needs. How do you do that? Paul says contentment, trusting God, is learned. It's something you do through experience. If I could call contentment by any other name, I would call it maturity. Maturity is not instant. 
It's not a one-time experience. It's a lifelong process of growing spiritually and emotionally of learning to trust God. And maturity, by the way, is not age. I've seen a lot of people that had age but didn't have maturity. Someone said that age is a fact, but maturity is a choice. Contentment comes with maturity, not with age. I thought about this, and I thought, well, God's answer is that we need to be content. But what are some other ways that are kind of off the radar very quickly? They're not in your notes. So I'm just going to throw your direction. What are some other ways that we steal from other people? One of those ways is unpaid debts. How many of us have uh, outstanding debts that we've never paid? The Bible says, oh, no man a debt, but the debt of love. How about intellectual property? Well, we really have a lot of fun with this. What about ideas or things that are intellectual property? I think one of the greatest areas of theft that our nation is facing today is people who choose not to work. People are saying, you know, the government will take care of me. And I've met numerous people who choose not to work because they believe the government owes me. The government will take care of me. The Bible says he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he, he must labor, perform with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who is in need. Elsewhere, the Bible says he who does not work, guess what? He doesn't eat. There should be a lot of thin people around, shouldn't there? But we steal in a variety of ways. But God says the answer to theft is trusting him completely. As I thought about this this last week, I was reminded of someone who has tremendously impacted my early Christian walk with the Lord. When I first met her, she was well into her 90s. I've spoken about her over the years time and time again. But her name was Lydia Meyer. She was an old rancher's wife in her mid-90s when I first met her. She used to put Bible college students up in her farmhouse. We were up in the very attic. And I remember as we would finish eating dinner every night without fail, we'd do the dishes, clearing the table, and then she would pull out an old, worn Bible. And she would open it up, and she would read from the passage of Scripture wherever we were at, and we talk about what God is sharing with us through his word. And that inevitably would lead to her telling stories of how God had provided richly for her over the many, many, many years. One story that stands out in particular was during the Great Depression, when it really was a depression. And there was no food. She was a young mom. And there was no food in the house whatsoever. And she wondered, how am I going to feed my family? And she prayed about it. That very same day, without ever saying a word to anyone, the landlord who owned the farm at that time came by, and he just happened to have a bag of potatoes and wanted to know if she could use these potatoes. She reminded me again and again how through many, many years, God continually provided for her and her family in ways that she could have never, ever anticipated. You see, sometimes God lets you experience the pinch of a great need just to see 
where your heart's going to go. Are you going to trust him? Or are you going to take matters into your own hands and usurp God's will in your life? When we learn to trust God, we can say with the Apostle Paul, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God wants to meet your needs. He will meet your needs. But he's asking you to trust him completely. And don't be surprised if God allows you to be in a situation where the temptation is overwhelming, where the pinch of the need is such that you feel like, I have to do something. Where's God at? And God is simply waiting to see. Are you going to choose to trust me? Or are you going to take matters into your own hands? When we learn to trust God, no matter what, we learn and we experience what it means, that one relationship that satisfies all others is that relationship with God. We understand what that means. Will you pray with me? This morning, with your heads bowed, would you come before the Lord right now and say, Lord, forgive me, Lord, where I have put people or things or money before you. Lord, forgive me where I have made plans to take matters into my own hands and have forgotten to include you. Right now, would you say, Lord, I want to make a commitment with my life. I choose to trust you completely for all my needs. And Lord, I recognize that you'll meet those needs in ways that you choose and the time that you choose. I surrender my trust to you. I thank you that you're my sustainer, my creator, my provider, my protector. And now I declare my trust, Lord, that you are my all. Lord, would you help me to walk and what it means to fully trust you. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ. The greatest decision that you'll ever make and the greatest relationship that you ever find meaning and fulfillment from is from the God who created you and is calling you into a relationship with himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Right where you're sitting right now, would you say, Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life that I would know what that relationship is, fulfillment and meaning and significance. But Lord, I recognize that relationship comes with a cost, a price that you paid for me. You gave your life on the cross as a ransom for my sin. You died in my place for my penalty. You died for my sin. And I believe, Lord Jesus, that you came to save, to rescue, and that you are my Savior, and there is no other. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and come into my life that I would know a true relationship with the living 
eternal, almighty, holy, and completely trustworthy and loving God. Come into my life right now, I pray, Lord. And help me learn what it means to walk with you in relationship. I pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. And I give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to stand and sing our final song, Open the Eyes of My Heart.